Welcome back to Lafayette, We're Here, a French history podcast for the American public. I'm your host, Emmanuel Dubois, and today we are talking about an important but often neglected conflict, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. Before getting into our subject, I want to thank the listeners for their kind feedback. I got constructive comments on the show as well as suggestions for the future episodes. By all means, keep sending me those. And now... Back to our topic for today. There is a fundamental concept in geopolitics. Balance of power. Imagine a small boat with two men in it. It is balanced. If you add an elephant to one side or the other, it capsizes. For centuries, France had been the dominant power in Western Europe, but not an all-powerful one. As mighty as its army was, it often had to deal with coalitions of countries that matched or surpassed its capabilities. And on the seas, it's been restricted by British power since the 16th century. There was a certain balance on continental Europe. France was very powerful, but not hegemonic. Something a country like Great Britain made sure with various alliances over the years. The last time a country was too strong, it was indeed France, during the Napoleonic Wars. It took efforts from all the rest of Europe to bring it down. Europe, post-1815, the year Napoleon was defeated and the Vienna Treaty is signed, is designed to prevent another nation from becoming that powerful. France loses a lot of conquered territory, and other kingdoms are reinforced. It was a triumph for conservatives and tenants of the Ancien Régime. But this all changes in the second half of the 19th century. France's population doesn't grow as fast as its neighbors because of various policies adopted in that period. And there is another big change on Europe's map. The German-speaking states are unifying under Prussia's implicable impulse. Germany, a country that is now Europe's dominant economical power, did not exist then. When it's born, France loses its status as Europe's main land military power, and it does so rapidly and dramatically. After that, the boat, that is Europe, will capsize a couple times over the next 75 years. I chose to talk about the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 because it is relatively unknown in the USA, stuck between the Civil War and the First World War. The American Civil War is a hugely important conflict, especially because of its moral implications. It will define what the US will be as a nation until today, and many of its issues are still very present in America. However, from a military standpoint, this war is closer to Napoleonic Wars than to the First World War. The Franco-Prussian War is the opposite. This conflict will have huge military and political consequences, but it is not a conflict of ideals or values. It's a good old power struggle, albeit in a new context. France, the millennia-old nation, versus the new kid on the block, the Northern German Confederation, 
created in 1867, and its German allies, Bavaria, Bade, Württemberg, and Hesse. It will also be the first real industrialized conflict in Europe, and it will be extremely bloody. The American Civil War was a war of attrition, a long, exhausting conflict that lasted four years, from 1861 to 1865. But it is still fought mainly with muzzle-loading rifles, muzzle-loading cannons with cannonballs and not shells, and with Napoleonic tactics. The Franco-Prussian War is fought with breech-loading rifles, heavy artillery, mitrailleuses, French for machine guns, and other terrible weapons. The famous Prussian general, Helmut von Moltke, who will be the main commander of the German forces during the war against France, was an observer in the US during the Civil War. And he described it as, quote, two armed mobs running around in the countryside and beating each other up, from which very little of military utility could be learned, end quote. Even without agreeing with this choice of word, I have to say that indeed, the European armies of the time were more advanced and modern than America's. But that's not necessarily a good thing. Let's compare the numbers to put things even more in perspective. The American Civil War cost over 600,000 dead in 48 months. This is by far the most American losses in any conflict. The US will suffer 116,000 dead in World War I and over 400,000 in World War II. So the Civil War is actually coster than the two world wars combined for America. The Franco-Prussian War cost over 190,000 dead, 150,000 of them being French. But that's over six months, not four years. That's 12,500 dead soldiers a month in America in the Civil War versus over 31,000 in the conflict that we're describing today. These numbers should help you understand how brutal and terrible this war was. It was over twice as deadly and destructive as the worst war America even went through. And that is saying something. Before going into the conflict itself, let's talk about this Northern German Confederation. One must understand that Germany, as a concept, did not exist back then. Contrary to the French, the German people lived in many states, not in one unified country. If you go to Germany today, this is still very visible. It is a decentralized country, and the different Länder, or states, have some autonomy within Germany. Germans still have very strong attachment to their Länder, culturally and politically. It's even the case in the country's name. English-speaking people call it Germany, because they're familiar with the German people. The French call it Allemagne, because of the Alemannic people. And the Germans themselves call it Deutschland, which could be translated into Teutonland. The biggest and strongest German state of the mid-19th century is Prussia. It is a big territory that would be over modern eastern Germany and Poland, basically. It is also a relatively recent country, established as a kingdom only in the 18th century. But from the get-go, 
it has a very strong emphasis on the military. The French writer Mirabeau said of Prussia that it is not a nation with an army, but a nation conquered by an army. The best social position you could achieve in Prussia was in the military. And in the 1860s, Prussia fought successful wars against Denmark and Austria to incorporate older German-speaking states forming the Northern German Confederation in 1867, the same year that the Canadian Confederation is created, by the way. It is basically a federal system, with Prussia on top, but incorporating Hanover, Schleswig-Holstein, Nassau, Hesse, and Frankfurt. This enterprise of creating a united German territory is pushed forward by one of the most brilliant politicians of all time, Otto von Bismarck. He is the Prussian foreign minister and becomes the first German chancellor. In 1862, Bismarck made a speech in Prussia regarding foreign policy and military budget. During that speech, he said, quote, The position of Prussia in Germany will not be determined by its liberalism, but by its power. Prussia must concentrate its strength and hold it for the favorable moment, which has already come and gone several times. Since the treaties of Vienna, our frontiers have been ill-designed for a healthy body politic. Not through speeches and majority decisions will the great question of the day be decided. That was a great mistake of 1848 and 1849, but by iron and blood. That iron and blood quote is particularly famous and portrays him as brutal and reckless, but it is only one aspect of his personality and desire for united Germany. He is in fact a remarkable diplomat and not a reckless, savage or bloodthirsty leader. Otto von Bismarck is a visionary as well as a political genius. He technically works for the Prussian king, Wilhelm, but in reality they work together and Bismarck is the one planning and building the political alliances needed to create a unified German state. The funny thing is that Wilhelm doesn't care about a unified Germany. He just wants to be king of Prussia, but he goes along. There is a lot of drama between Bismarck and Wilhelm, with Bismarck often threatening to quit or even to commit suicide. But just like an old couple, they talk it out and they keep going. France is obviously troubled by these German unification wars. Although it doesn't find itself directly involved in these conflicts, Prussia is definitely changing the balance of power in Europe in its favor, and France does not like this. Not one bit. Ironically enough, the last straw from the French viewpoint won't come from Germany, but from Spain. Spain was a monarchy, one with a reigning Bourbon family. Remember them? They are the branch of the Capetian dynasty that reigned in France until the revolution. Spain has had a Bourbon monarch since Louis XIV's grandson became king of Spain. But at the end of the 19th century, Spain is going through a very, very rough patch, and it had been for decades. It faces various crises until the Bourbon monarchy collapses in 1869. That's where things get interesting for us. Isabel II, 
Queen of Spain, takes refuge in France, and there is a name circulating for a successor. Leopold von Hohenzollern, the German prince, is from the king of Prussia's family, and Bismarck is pushing for him to become the new king of Spain. As soon as that happens, France starts threatening war. France doesn't want to relive the times in the 16th to 18th century when the Habsburg family ruled over Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, basically modern Germany, being caught between the two. So it puts all its diplomatic weight to prevent this from happening. Bismarck, being the shrewd politician that he is, pushes even more for the prince's candidacy. He doesn't care much as to what happens to Spain, but he sees that as a way to solidify the new German unity. If France is against the desires of the Prussian ruling family, it's a problem for Prussia. But if France is willing to go to war against the new confederation and its German allies, it's another matter entirely. Bismarck would be defending the German people. He'd be the good guy. The French, misguided and underestimating German military might, kept on pressing. The French foreign minister, Gramont, is particularly pro-war and does everything Bismarck wants him to do. The German chancellor calling the French minister, quote, the stupidest man in Europe. Leopold von Hohenzollern finally decides to decline the offer to be king of Spain for various reasons. But France wanted more. It wanted the king of Prussia's insurance that this situation would never happen again. Bismarck made sure that they did not get those insurances. And so, on July 19, 1870, France declares war on Prussia. The French minister of war, General Leboeuf, was certain that the French army was more than ready for this war, stating that, quote, so ready are we that if the war lasts two years, not a gator button would be found wanting. End quote. He was completely wrong. France was facing the Northern German Confederation, but also its German allies, Bavaria, Bade, Württemberg, and Hesse. The Germans were able to mobilize much faster than the French, sending at least twice the number of soldiers the French were able to muster. The French are led by Marshal MacMahon, who suffers a defeat at the Battle of Wiesenburg, close to Strasbourg, on August 4th. The Germans then keep inflicting defeat after defeat to their French enemy. The French have no choice but to retreat and try to regroup. The French army was disorganized, pretentious and misled. A far cry from Napoleon's Grande Armée or even the French army that gained victories in the 1850s. The Germans are led by Helmut von Molke and he's far more cunning and modern than his French counterparts. The French had tried to hold the fortress of Metz in Lorraine, but on August 19, the French Marshal Bazin has to retreat. That's when Napoleon III took personal command of the French army called the Armée de la Meuse, along with Marshal MacMahon. He clearly hoped that his presence at the front would help the French cause. 
It should be noted that Napoleon III at this time is old and sick with major bowel and cardiac issues. How much did that play a role in the outcome of the war? Probably not much in the grand scheme of things, but it is worth mentioning. The war is about to have its biggest and most decisive battle at Sedan, in the Ardennes. The French army is composed of about 130,000 men and 564 guns. The Germans have over 200,000 men and 774 guns. On September 1st, the French launch an assault and suffer heavy losses, over 38,000 casualties, 21,000 of them being prisoners. The soldiers flee the battlefield. The German guns fire in a semicircle formation on the French troops, unopposed. It's a massacre. The main reason for this debacle is French lack of quality in command. Marshal McMahon, who had already committed various tactical errors, is wounded early in the battle. He's replaced by General Ducrot. He decides to go against the Marshal orders, issuing his own, creating confusion in the French ranks. A bit later, General de Wimfen claims that command should be his, as he passes a letter from the minister stating that should the marshal be incapacitated, he would be the one in charge. He also issues new orders. Confusion turns into complete chaos on the French side. The French soldiers will pay the price of this incompetence with their lives. In the end, over a hundred thousand French soldiers are made prisoners by the Germans. They also capture thousands of horses, rifles, and other military equipment. The Emperor Napoleon III tried his hand at diplomacy, going to discuss terms with Bismarck and the Kaiser Wilhelm, both of whom are at the battle. Remember, this is still the 19th century. Statesmen can and will go on the next hill or something to observe a major battle. In the end, Napoleon has to surrender. He is made prisoner by the Germans. His regime, the Second Empire, falls. The new republic is proclaimed in Paris. It's ignominy for France, triumph and victory for the soon-to-be Germany. The French managed to master over half a million men to keep on fighting. They even managed a victory in November at Coulmiers. But the Germans are better led, have bigger field guns and the momentum. The French do have some technological advantages. They have more machine guns, and those are dreaded by the German soldiers. Their rifle, the Chassepot, is more accurate and powerful than the German Dreise. It's the first real industrial war, and men are exposed to heavy artillery for the first time. Instead of having iron balls falling on them, they face explosive shells. If walking in ranks, instead of a dead man or two, some broken limbs, you end up with ground meat. It's horrifying in a glimpse of what will happen in 1914. The fighting goes on everywhere. Paris is even besieged until the French government of national defense signs an armistice on January 28, 1871. This seventh month's war was actually decided in two, with the remainder of the war being just more misery for the French. All the fighting 
happened on French soil. When all is said and done, the French had suffered over 150,000 dead, as many wounded, and over 700,000 prisoners. The Germans had lost 28,000 men. France suffered also a civil war just after the war with Prussia. This event, known as the Paris Commune, caused between 15 and 20,000 dead and had a deep impact on France. I will do an episode on it and the Third Republic properly at some point. But for now, I'll focus on the geopolitical changes in Europe because of the outcome of the war. After the armistice, the Treaty of Frankfurt was signed in May 1871, and it stated that France had to cede Alsace and Lorraine to Germany and to pay billions in war indemnity. A German occupying force stayed in France until it was fully paid, which took about three years. The most important consequence, in my opinion, is what happened to the various German states. This war had been a huge unifier. Bismarck had achieved his goal. On January 18, 1871, even before the armistice, the Second German Empire, or Reich in German, is proclaimed in Versailles, just to rub it in. It's called the Second Empire because the Holy Roman Empire is considered the first. It incorporates the German states that fought with Prussia against France and effectively becomes the strongest state in Europe. The European order had been completely turned over. France's army was considered the finest in Europe and it got not only defeated, but crushed by the Germans. This shift in military supremacy was sudden and with enormous consequences. From now on, French, British, Russians and other diplomacies will have to take into account Germany's desires and sensibilities a lot more often. Germany had become the elephant in the European boat. If it decides to move a bit too fast to one side or the other, the whole thing would capsize. As we all know, Germany did move a bit too fast during the 20th century, and Europe not only capsized, but burned. Of course, it is a lot more complicated than that, and Germany is not the only nation responsible for the world wars. Far from it, in fact. But it is incontestable that it had become the dominant power in Europe because of its success against France in 1870 and 71. France itself became a republic, and this won't change. France was done with monarchies and empires. It will recover from this crushing defeat, albeit never totally. Of this war, and the defeat of Sedan in particular, one of the founders and future French prime ministers of the Third Republic said, N'en parlez jamais, pensez-y toujours, which translates in Never speak of it. Always think of it. Now, I would like to conclude this episode with a what-if segment. We normally do not write history with ifs, but I think it's worth the exercise here. Most people are barely aware of the Franco-Prussian War, or not at all. But imagine for a second that France had won that contest. Imagine the French finding a weakness in the German tactic, and defeating their army. Imagine French troops 
walking in Germany. German towns being sacked, German civilians suffering. The cement of German unification was still very, very fresh. It would not have taken well French boots marching all over it. The Northern German Confederation might very well have collapsed in such a scenario. Bismarck would have been sacked and King Wilhelm might have been deposed. Instead of a strong German unification, we could have reverted to multiple weaker German states. What would the consequences of that be for the 20th century? Would we still have a World War I? Maybe, but it surely would have been completely different. Maybe shorter. Maybe the US don't get involved with it. Therefore, completely changing America's role on the international scene from what we know actually happened. Russia might not have had its Bolshevik Revolution, which was greatly helped by the war and its repeated defeats against Germany. I have no doubt that the Tsar government would have fallen or it would have changed dramatically, but maybe not into the Soviet Union. Maybe a liberal, western-friendly Russia would have emerged? Who knows? What is sure is that this war, this little talked-about war, was a pivotal moment in Europe's history, and probably in world's history. As I stated in my introduction episode, France's history often has consequences that go way beyond its borders. The Franco-Prussian War is a perfect example of that. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to send me questions or feedback about it. Thank you for listening. Au revoir. You can find the Lafayette We Are Here podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, and other platforms, or on lafayettepodcast.com. If you wish to contact me, you can do so at emmanuel at lafayettepodcast.com or on Twitter at lafayettepod. The music for this podcast was composed and performed by Michel Dubois.